to the book of Revelation, chapter 22. Revelation 22, begin with verse 6, and we'll read through verse 21. And he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things, and when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers the prophets and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil and the filthy still be filthy. And the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me, to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life, and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of, this, of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. I think in these, these verses that form my text for this morning, there are a number of lessons that summarize what we have encountered through our study in the book of Revelation. And so I hope to point out to you several of these lessons that I think are summarized here in chapter 22. And the first thing, uh, what I intend to do is not just give you an exposition all the way through these verses that I've just read, but to identify the lesson and then show you how that it is explained or treated in this passage. So, for example, the first lesson is that uh, the Word of God is trustworthy and true. And then I'll show you where else in this passage of Scripture that that point is supported. But that is the first point. Something that we learn from the book of Revelation is that 
the word of these words are trustworthy and true. So as uh, the angel who has been showing these things to the Apostle John is bringing them to a close, then uh, he, he assures him, all of these things, you've seen some amazing and marvelous things, but keep in mind that this is not just some kind of a, a fairy tale to be entertained with or to be marveled at, but rather this is a revelation from God, and it is trustworthy, and it is true. Now, we live in a time when, like never before, it's difficult to understand whether or not something that purports to be trustworthy and true is indeed trustworthy and true. Throughout uh, much of my adult life, I have uh, uh, watched the evening news. My children tell me that it is only old people who watch the evening news, and I believe it by the advertisements. They're all for uh, maladies that old people have. And, uh, but lately, I have become so disgusted with the biased presentation of news on uh, the, the channels that I have available to, to me that I've pretty much stopped watching the evening news and just uh, try, to, try to remain informed on what I need to be informed with from some other source. I, I know that years ago, if you read something in a book and you, you quoted that and you said, I read it somewhere, then people thought, well, then it must be true if it's in a book. Or if you heard something reported on the evening news and you said, well, I heard it on the news, then people said, well, that must be true because they believed that the news report was a trustworthy and true source of information. They believed that books and things that appeared in magazine had been, had been edited by someone who was concerned about presenting the truth. But now we are besieged with all kinds of uh, information that is parading as the truth, and we don't know whether it's trustworthy and true or not. You just can't take it at face value anymore. And so it should come as a great relief to you to know that the Word of God is trustworthy and true that it is something that has been proven faithful by many people down through the ages. Many of us who have been Christians for years have, are able to testify. These are true things. They are worth trusting in. They are worth putting your confidence in and altering your life so that it conforms with the principles that are revealed in the Word of God. The way that the Bible says that you are to get right with God really is the way to get right with God. And some of us have learned that by experience. That trusting in Jesus Christ is the way to have your sins forgiven and to enjoy fellowship with God. Because many of us have felt that our sins have been forgiven and that we do have fellowship with God. The things that are revealed in the scripture are trustworthy and they are true. It's not fake news. It is trustworthy and it is true. Now, this particular statement is made about the book of Revelation in particular, but I think since it shows up at the very last, in the very last book of the Bible, I don't think it was the last book that was written. I think that the Gospel of John was written after this, but uh, that uh, it it shows up at the end of the book. And a couple of the things that are said here in this final chapter in our Bibles, as, uh, as the Holy Spirit has seen fit to lead the church to arrange it, are significant regarding the Word of God. That is, that you ought to base uh, what you trust in, what you believe, on what is trustworthy and what is true. And then there's something else that is said here about the Word of God, and that is, don't mess with it. 
So it's trustworthy and it's true. It doesn't need you and me to improve it, to take anything out of it or to add anything to it. You can see that don't mess with it clause down in verse 18. I warn everyone who hears the words of this prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the the plagues described in this book. God has said in the book of Revelation and in the Bible, he has said what he needs to, what he wants to be said. He has said all that needs to be said. And we don't need a further revelation later on to come from Joseph Smith or from Mary Baker Eddy or from some other source who is claiming that they are receiving a further addition to the scriptures that the Lord has given. The Lord says here, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophets of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. And so there's very severe warnings that are given to adding to the word of God or taking away from the word of God. Now, What does it mean if anyone takes away from the words of the prophets of this book, I will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city? Does that mean that someone can lose his salvation? Well, I admit that if this were the only passage of scripture that we had in the Bible regarding whether or not someone could lose their salvation, I would tend to believe that it was teaching that you could lose your salvation. In fact, there are several things in this chapter that look like salvation is by works. If all I had was Revelation 22, verses 6 through the end of the chapter, then I might conclude that salvation is by works. But that's not all that we have. This is why it is important for us to bring theology to our interpretation of particular passages of Scripture. We look at what the rest of the Bible says. The rest of the Bible says that you cannot lose your salvation. The rest of the Bible says that salvation is by grace through faith alone. And if you're saved because of what someone else has done, then you can't lose it through what you do. But what the book of Revelation makes clear regarding the Word of God and regarding the works that are produced by someone who has faith in the Word of God is that when you believe in the Word of God, you Take God at his word and you're not trying to correct God by adding things to what he has said or by taking away things from what he has said. Now we live in a time where this is an extraordinarily popular thing to do. People look at the documents of the New Testament and they say, well, if we give credit to what you Christians say, they are at least 1900 years old. And some of the, uh, the ethical standards that were propounded 1,900 years ago have since that time become outdated. And uh, there are certain things that are said to be sin in the Bible that now we know better and, and uh, they're no longer sin anymore. There are certain roles that are prescribed to men and women in the Bible that were uh, just reflective of the first century A.D., and they're no, longer, they're no longer relevant for us. Well, you know, that's taken away from the Word of God. You know, that's adding to the Word of God. There is a... When you are saved, you are saved by believing in Jesus Christ. But where do you learn about Jesus Christ? You have to learn about Jesus Christ from the Bible. 
You can't just make it up. Just make up a Jesus of your own creation. That's not the real Jesus. The real Jesus is the Jesus who is revealed in the Holy Scriptures. And, and the, the way that we learn about Jesus is by reading what the Bible says about him. So if the Bible says that Jesus, for example, says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me, Jesus is, exclaiming, is proclaiming that he is the only way to get to the Father. And then we come along centuries later and say, well, that's extraordinarily narrow-minded. There are actually other ways to be saved. We've made a dreadful mistake. We have acted as if we know better than Jesus, the Son of God. And we are adding to the Word of God, but we are also demonstrating that we do not have that that kind of faith in Jesus Christ that rests upon an assurance that the Word of God is trustworthy. And so you may be believing in a Jesus of your own creation if your tendency is to add to the words of the book of this prophecy or take away from the words of the book of this prophecy. In the last few days, I have been in correspondence on email with a young man whose story I have told you before. And uh, I, I've, I think I've mentioned this recently. I don't know. No, I was at a different church where I was preaching. But uh, the, the young man would not mind my uh, telling you who it is. His name's Benjamin Eliff. He's the son of Jim Eliff, a well known preacher. And uh, he was part of the church where I pastored in Kansas City in, uh, in uh, the late, late 20th century, early 21st century. So I was in. Kansas City. Here was this very bright young man. He's 36 years old now, but in those days he was just about 14. And uh, he was very thoughtful. He probably had read uh, more classic uh, literature and philosophy by age 18 than, most, than, I've, than I've read. And I have a PhD in English, so he's, he's read a lot, a lot of things. Very thoughtful, very thought-provoking, but he was not a Christian. He knew he wasn't a Christian. He never claimed to be a Christian. And then after I had uh, moved to Louisville, uh, I heard that he had become a Christian and he was going to come to the school where I taught. And so when he came, I uh, said, well, I've heard you become a Christian. Tell me about it. So he told me that uh, he, he had thought that he was going to be the first person to demonstrate the truths of Christianity from philosophy and that then he would embrace Christianity and become a Christian. But he couldn't quite get it proven from philosophy, and so he still was not embracing Christ. And he said, but my dad sat me down and said, Benjamin, under the guise of being a humble searcher into the truth, you are in fact being proud and refusing to assert, refusing to embrace the plain teaching that is asserted in the Bible. And you will never become a Christian until you believe that the Bible is the word of God. And so he said, so I saw that he was right. He said, I saw that I had to take something by faith. I had to take either by faith, I had to take by faith either that the word of God was the word of God or that philosophy was a reliable means of ascertaining the truth. But I couldn't prove either one. I had to take something by faith. And so I took that the word of God was the word of God by faith. And he paused as if he were finished with his testimony. And I said, and then later on you became a Christian? 
He said, oh, it was virtually simultaneous. Once I embraced that the Bible was the Word of God, I also embraced Jesus Christ because, as you know, I knew what the Bible said. And so with him, receiving the Word of God as the Word of God was simultaneous with believing that Jesus is the Messiah. He received him as his Lord. Now he's 36 years old and the, uh, the father of a lovely family and walking with the Lord all of these years. But it was, it was in embracing that I can trust what the Bible says. You've got to believe what the Bible says. You, you cannot be picking at it as if you have the authority to decide this is true and that's not true. You've got to receive that these are the trustworthy and true words of God. Now, in the Bible, the Lord reveals his truth in a variety of ways, but let's just summarize those variety of ways into two main categories. There are, first of all, the category where he tells us the truth, and then there are large portions of Scripture where he shows us the truth. Well, which is the book of Revelation? Well, look at verse 6 and see what it says there again. Uh, he sent his angel to show, to what? To show his servants what must soon take place. The book of Revelation is one of those portions of Scripture that reveals truth primarily through showing and not primarily through telling. So the book of Revelation is full of these, these very vivid descriptions of of beasts and visions in heaven and, and, uh, and all of these things, but it is a way of showing the truth. Much of the Bible takes this approach to explaining what it is that God wants us to know. This is the approach that is taken by the historical sections of the Bible. You take uh, the story, let's just start early in, in the book of Genesis, the stories that you encounter there are never concluded by saying, now here's the moral of this story. Instead, you read the story and you say, oh, he shouldn't have done that. Oh, that was good. You, you're able to draw the moral from the stories. There are storybooks that have no words in them. I mentioned one of them to you earlier in this series. If you people who have uh, preschoolers who cannot yet read have not yet acquired Peter Spire or Spear's book, S-P-I-E-R, apostrophe S, if you haven't acquired his book on, on Noah's Ark, you ought to get that for your kid for Christmas. No words, but it just tells the story of Noah's Ark through pictures. I can do the same thing for you right now. So I want you to imagine a little boy standing in the checkout aisle with his mother at Walmart. And you know they've got all that candy there. And he looks up at his mother and he points to a Snickers bar and she shakes her head no. And then she turns her head away. And the little boy sees that she's no longer looking. He sees that the cash register person is no longer looking. He looks behind him, and he takes that Snickers bar, 
and he puts it in his pocket. And nobody sees him. And then he goes home. When his mother speaks to him, then he looks scared. But he finally makes it home. The candy bar is not discovered. It's time to go to bed, and so he goes up to his room, takes off his jacket, takes that Snickers bar out of his coat, sits down on the edge of his bed, smells it, opens up a little corner of it, throws the little corner of the paper down on the floor, and just then his mom walks in, and he shoves the candy bar under his pillow. And his mom sits down, He keeps looking down on the floor at that little piece of the candy bar wrapper that dropped, but she doesn't see it. Instead, she sits down on the edge of the bed, strokes his hair back, smiles, has prayer with him, and leaves. And the last thing that I want you to see in this little story that I'm showing you is that as he lies there on the pillow, tears are streaming down his eyes. Tears are streaming out of his eyes and down his cheek onto his pillow. Now you see, there, was no, there were no words in that story. But you, you were able to follow the story. You know that he, when he's looking around, he's getting ready to steal the candy bar. You know that he's looking forward to that candy bar, but he feels guilty about it. His conscience is bothering him. He's... His fellowship with his parents is broken because he's scared when his mother speaks to him or he's scared when she comes into the room. But then what's the meaning of him crying at the end? I don't think anybody in here thought he was upset because he wasn't going to eat the candy bar. You know he's, he's upset because his mother thinks well of him. His mother thinks, you're a good boy. I'm so proud of you. And all this while, he's remembering that he's got a candy bar under his pillow that he stole. And uh, that's where I ended the story. Carol hates movies that end that way. But I think, well, that, that's kind of a good ending to the story. You use your imagination. You think She would like to see him get up the next morning, admit that he had stolen the candy bar, go back to Walmart and pay for it and all that. But I think there's just a little bit of mystery here. And that, that, adds to the, that adds to the power and the effectiveness of it. That's what the book of Revelation does. The book of Revelation reveals to us a series of pictures. Here's what God is telling you. And is there some mystery involved to it? Yes, there's some mystery. You know, there are, throughout church history, there have been people who have taken different approaches and different ideas about what the book of Revelation is saying. But as you know, I've taken the approach that what is revealed in the book of Revelation is something that for us is history. For the people who are reading it for the first time, it was still in the future, but it was in the very near future. Five times in the text of Scripture that I just read, you have something like the time is near. Let me see if I can point them out to you quickly. So, Uh, At the end of verse 6, this is what must soon take place. The beginning of verse 7, I am coming soon. The beginning of verse verse 10, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book. The time is near. Beginning of verse 12, behold, I am coming soon. And then once again in, uh, in verse 20, I am coming soon. So five times 
in these few verses, the Lord tells John, this is about to happen. And uh, so this is at the conclusion of the book. All of these things that you have just said, they're just about to happen. And so as I have explained, there are some things that are like the seed of that sassafras tree that I described to you last week. That that seed was planted, and then through the years, the sassafras tree has grown, but it still is that seed that was planted 300 years ago. And that's the way it is with the the truths that are revealed in the book of Revelation. The, The covenant with Israel was broken. The city of Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 A.D., The old Jerusalem is described as a prostitute. The new Israel is described as a bride coming down from heaven out of God. There's a contrast between the old Jerusalem and the new Jerusalem. And at the beginning of the book of Revelation and at the end of the book of Revelation, the Lord says, these things are about to happen to people who are reading this in the late 60s A.D. And it did happen in the year 70 A.D. Now, there are some of those seeds that will continue to grow. Some of those things that were just at the beginning. You know, then he who seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And and so on. That There are things that they're happening now. The kingdom of God has been established. And it's going to grow and grow and grow until it is ultimately realized in the new heavens and the new earth. But I think that from the Revelation 1 and Revelation 22, you've got to conclude that the book of Revelation is mostly about things that were just about to take place for the people who read it for the first time. Now, the benefit of that is that we're able to read the book of Revelation with uh, the attitude, God is teaching us things here like he has been teaching us in the other demonstrative sections of the Bible, as opposed to didactic. Demonstrative, you're showing. Didactic, you're teaching. So in the demonstrative sections of the Bible, you have history that is recorded, and then you take lessons from the history. These things were written for our example, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. And so we read the book of Revelation with the same kind of spiritual attitude of learning that we read the history of the Babylonian captivity, that we read the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah's warning, if you don't repent, then then this is what's going to happen. Oh, don't go down into Egypt or the Lord is going to judge you and the king of Babylon will come and take you anyway. Well, look, you and I are not in danger of being overtaken by the king of Babylon. So how do we read that and how do we benefit from that? Well, the same principles that led to God judging Israel in those days are the same principles by which the Lord works today. And the things that pleased him then are things that pleased him today. And so uh, we, we see from Revelation 22 that the book of Revelation is part of that book, that part of, that, part of God's Word that teaches by demonstrating, teaches by pictures, because God sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. So, really, I've given you the first two lessons. The Word of God is trustworthy and true, and much of the Word of God, including the book of Revelation, teaches through showing. But let's go on and uh, look in verse 7 at something that I just mentioned 
Behold, I'm coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Now, keeping strongly implies obeying. Part of keeping is remembering. I grant you that. But usually when we think of keeping the commandments of the Lord, we're not thinking of, hey, I need to memorize these things and not forget them. That's part of it. But mainly, and I think rightfully so, we think there are principles that are revealed here that should influence the way that I live my life. And so the principle here that I think is taught in the book of Revelation is that your life reveals your loyalties. Your life reveals your loyalties. This will come as a shock to some of you who are hearing it for the first time, but some of you have already heard it. Right now, you have a mark on your forehead. Right now, you have either been identified as someone who belongs to God, or else someone else has their mark on your forehead. Now, of course, none of us in this room have tattoos or any kind of chips implanted in our forehead or in our hands. But this is a way of saying When you are loyal to a way of thinking, it shows up in the way that you think and it shows up in the way that you live. The Bible teaches that salvation is by grace through faith. It is free. The gift of salvation is free. But when you receive this gift of free salvation, it makes a difference in the way that you live and you become a person who does good works. You become a person who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book and other books of the Bible. Now, this is not the only place in this text where this point is emphasized, that your life reveals your loyalty. So look at what it says in verse 12. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. Repay each one for what he has done. Our Are our works going to be taken into account when we are judged? Yes. The works that you do indicate where your loyalties lie. And if you are a righteous person, then you will do right. Look at verse 11. Let the evildoers still do evil and the filthy still be filthy and the righteous still do right and the holy still be holy. I meant to save this for later in the sermon, but it comes up now. The point here is there there comes a time when there is nothing more that can be said and an evildoer is not going to change. He's going to keep doing evil. And a filthy person is not going to bathe. He is going to remain spiritually filthy. But that indicates where his loyalties lie. And the same thing with the righteous person who does what is right and the holy man who remains holy. He is not justified on the basis of his holiness. But whether or not he really has received the Lord is obvious in the works that he does. The way that you live reveals where your loyalties lie. And that shows up um, elsewhere in this text of Scripture, but that's enough to show you that the way that you live indicates where your loyalties lie. 
So the Lord says, blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. So a first lesson, the words of God are trustworthy and true. Second lesson, much of the word of God teaches through demonstration, through pictures. And the book of Revelation is one of those books. Third lesson is that the way that you live indicates where your loyalties lie. Whether or not you have received the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ will be evidenced in the way that you live. Here is a fourth lesson. One of the main easy-to-see lessons in the book of Revelation is worship God alone. Look at verse 8. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things, and when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. So negatively, we ought not to render uh, that adoration which is due unto God alone. We ought, we ought not to render it to any, any other person or any other angel, no matter how much they have been a blessing to us. And so uh, it seems to me that this would... Uh, do away with any kind of the veneration of the saints, worshiping Mary or praying to Mary or to any any of the other saints. This angel says, I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers the prophets and with all who keep the words of this book. Worship God. God is the only one who is worthy of worship. And then there are several things that are mentioned here that explain why it is that God is worthy of worship. So, for example, look at verse 13, where the Lord Jesus Christ says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Now, we had this statement in the first part of the book of Revelation, and it wasn't clear whether this was Jesus or if it was God the Father, but it's clear that it's Jesus here who is described as the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last the beginning and the end. He is the one who is timeless. To use my illustration that I used last week, he's like a line that has an arrow on both ends. There is no beginning. There is no ending. He is the only one who is eternal. He is the only one who is self-existent and self-sufficient. Everything that is, is, is contained in him. You and I have, uh, you and I have dictionaries that start with the letter A and they end with the letter Z and the very last word in the, in the English language is there at the very end of the book. But suppose that these, uh, these dictionaries were issued a volume, a volume at a time. Here is the letters A and B. Here's the letters C and D. And that is, in fact, the way the Oxford English Dictionary is put out. <clears throat> it's the way that it's published, if it is published anymore. Uh, and I think I brought in about this time last year I was dealing with the Alpha and the Omega, a, a volume, 22 volumes of the Oxford English Dictionary. It's about this big. Each of the volumes probably uh, 12, 14 inches high. It's, it's a wonderful book. It's a wonderful, wonderful collection. Uh, but issued, here are the A's and the B's. Here are the C's and the D's and so on <clears throat> through the 22 volumes. Well, the Lord Jesus Christ is the the dictionary of the ages that contains everything that has ever been written. From the Alpha to the Omega, he is the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And such a being is worthy of our worship. 
especially when we see that he is the fulfillment of the prophecies that were made in the Old Testament. Look at verse 16. It says concerning what Jesus says concerning himself, I am the root and the descendant of David. Root, that's what a tree grows out of. And then descendant, that's something that comes from the tree. This is one of the puzzles that Jesus presented to the religious antagonists of his day. He said, you say that, uh, Dave, that the Messiah is going to be the descendant of David? Yes, that's right, they say. Then Jesus asked them, then how is it that David calls him Lord? Because he says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. It was a puzzle that they could not piece together. It was a riddle that they could not unravel. But Jesus is the answer. He is the root. He is the one who is the source of David. But he's also the descendant of David. And as the root and descendant of David... He fulfills the prophecies that were made concerning him. We read one of them just a few minutes ago from Isaiah chapter 55 and verse 3. He is the bright morning star. When we were going through the letters to the seven churches, we read that one of the promises made to those who conquered is that the Lord says, and I will give him the morning star. And at that time, I had already read to the end of the book, and so I knew who the morning star was. But at that point... It's not exactly clear what the morning star is, but here it is clear that the morning star is Jesus Christ. But we ask, why is he called the morning star? Because he is the one who appears at the dawning of the day, at the close of the night and the dawning of the day. And that's one of the main themes of the book of Revelation. The, the, a, a great change is going to take place and is described in the book of Revelation. The abolition of the Old Covenant, which had been in effect for hundreds of years, and the establishment of the New Covenant, which has been in effect for these 2,000 years now, and for who knows how many more years into the future. But throughout all this bright day of, of the New Covenant, Jesus Christ is the star that is in the heavens. And so one of the main lessons of the book of Revelation is worship God. No matter what your approach is, No matter what your interpretation is of the book of Revelation, this is one thing that is clear. It is God alone who is to be worshipped. One final lesson from the book of Revelation is that there is a free invitation made to anyone who will come. And we can see that in verse 17. This is the scripture memory verse that we're memorizing this month. The spirit and the bride say, come. Sometimes when people are under conviction of their sins, they, they wonder, may I come? Can I come to the Lord Jesus Christ? Why, well, here is an invitation from the Spirit and from the church that to say, come. And so that's what you also ought to say. Let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. The truths of God as revealed in Jesus Christ are described in the scripture as being a fountain of living waters, something that uh, if you're thirsty, you may come and drink. If you are not yet a Christian, you cannot blame anyone but yourself. If you leave this house today not a Christian, it is your fault. 
You say, well, I'm not very thirsty. God can make me thirsty if He wants to. God can make you thirsty, but it's not God's fault that you are slaking your thirst on the rot-gut liquor of this world. That's your fault. Stop, stop drinking that whatever it is that's making you satisfied. Stop eating the junk food, and you'll have a hunger for Jesus, the bread of life. But it's not God's fault. God's invitation is open to you today, and it is an urgent invitation when he says, let the one who desires take the water of life without price. This book concludes with a final benediction, and it is the benediction with which I will close this sermon and close this year-long series on the book of Revelation. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen.